All right. Thank you, praise team. I appreciate that so much. Beautiful songs and what a wonderful day to honor moms. We're so glad for you, mom, and so glad for the impact you've had on our lives. Uh, grandmothers as well. I think of my grandmother and mother. I think of Lois and Eunice in the Bible and just the impact they had on Timothy. And I can see the impact my grandmother and mom have had on my life. And so I'm so grateful for that. And I'm not going to tell you stories about that. I'll blubber up here, so I don't want to do that. But I tell you what, it, uh, it literally steered my life. And so I'm so grateful. And I'm so grateful for you moms and grandmas and everyone who's raised children here. Maybe you weren't a direct mom by birth with your children, but you raised them and you loved them. And I just think that's a wonderful tribute to every mother in this room. And so uh, a lot of churches, I don't know why, but a lot of churches don't do any special message on Mother's Day anymore. And so I asked my sons-in-laws and my, my son-in-law and my two my, two, my three sons, I said, uh, what are you guys preaching on? And none were preaching on Mother's Day. They said, you don't do that anymore. That's out of date. I said, I don't believe it's out of date. I think it's wonderful. So if I'm out of date, just let me know. You know, send me an email. Say, you're out of date, man. I don't want to be crying up here about a mom. But uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to honor. And I know a lot of the younger uh, generation pastors are saying the same thing, that uh, uh, it's just becoming out of vogue. So... Either I'm out of touch or I'm right in touch. I'll just let you decide. But I have a real passion for uh, mothers. And I know it's affected my life so deeply that I comb the scriptures, try to find passages on mothers. And I found a passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And I would like you to turn there today um, on a message that I'm going to give you. I entitled it, Not on This Mother's Watch. Not on This Mother's Watch. It's probably going to be one of the unusual messages that I preach on Mother's Day. And after you read the scripture, you'll understand why. But I want to use this as an example uh, before us about the power of moms and the influence of moms. Uh, let me mention, too, Tuesday night we're having first impression security class. That's really for our security and for our ushers. But if you'd like to come, it's put on by the Forsyth County Sheriff. Uh, department, and they are going to be speaking on several topics, especially today when you're out in public and things that you should do and shouldn't do and be aware of around you. A lot of times you can be unaware of the things going around. One of the things they're going to um, talk about is identifying a problem, problem around you before it starts and how to assess a threat when you're in situations like that. And so if you'd like to come, that's 6 o'clock this Tuesday night over in the Kids Street and I would encourage you to do that, especially in this day and age and the things we see going on. Stand with me now. 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, 
Let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So the king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, Armoni and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai and Mahotholite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul in Goboah. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zela, in the grave of Kish his father. Thus did all the king commanded, and after that God was moved by the prayer for the land. You may be seated. It's always good to start a sermon on a light note, so let me start on a light note. This was in Reader's Digest for the month. Here's some, here's some humor that explains maternal experience. Maternal experience. Never tell your mom you need your personal space. You came out of her personal space. Here's mom's recipe for iced coffee. Number one, have kids. Number two, make coffee. Number three, forget you made coffee. Number four, drink it cold. <laughs> First child eats dirt, mom calls the doctor. Second child eats dirt, mom cleans out his mouth. Third child eats dirt, mom wonders if she still needs to make lunch. <laughs> I love those. I love this little saying too. It's, it's precious to me. It's, it's a career mom. Uh, the images of mother, it's called. Four years of age. My mommy can do anything. Eight years of age. My mom knows a lot, a whole lot. Twelve years of age. My mother really doesn't know quite everything. Fourteen years of age. Naturally, mother doesn't know that either. Sixteen years of age. Mother, she's hopelessly old-fashioned. Eighteen years of age. That old woman, she was way out of date. Thirty-five years of age. Before we decide, let's get mom's opinion. 45 years of age. Wonder what mom would have thought about it. 65 years of age. Wish I could talk it over with mom. That's good. That's good. I like those. Wish I could talk it over with mom. We all feel that in our spirit as we grow. Moms go from hero to zero and then back from zero to hero in their lifetime. It's an amazing transfer of time. And there's something about a mother and what she does and puts into her children that is priceless. And so today is one of the most unusual and unique stories in the Bible. It's about a mom, and there's a famine in the land. And David goes to inquire of the Lord, what's going on, Lord? Why the famine? He said, years and years ago, 
Saul went and killed some Gibeonites that were under a covenant all the way back from Joshua's day, and he went and killed them just to show his people solidarity between Israel and Judah. And so he did it as a show of force. But these people were very poor, and they followed Israel and were slaves to Israel literally, and they were like refugees today. And so Saul just went in and plundered them and killed them. It'd be like you going in and killing refugees today. Just to kind of show yourself tough. And God said, I put a famine on the land, and before you can unite Judah and Israel back, David, I want that one cleaned up. Because there's a curse on the land. There was a direct connection between what happened in the land, whether it was a famine, no rain, or whatever happened, it was always connected to the covenant. If they did right, God blessed them. If they did wrong, they were cursed. And one of the signs of a curse was a famine. Now, we don't operate under that covenant. That's the old covenant. But that's the way they thought, and that's the way they operated in the old covenant. Now, God said to David that there was blood guilt. He was a bloody house. There's blood guilt on Saul's dynasty, and I want that taken care of. I want him to right the wrong with the Gibeonites. So David asked the king of Gibeah, Saul blew it. He killed some of your people. What do you want us to do? The king of Gibeah says to him, we don't want money. We don't want blood money. That's what you do today. If you you kill someone accidentally or someone kills, a lot of times we try to give money to be able to pay off the child or pay off the person that died. And that's how they do it today. Okay? They didn't do it that way back then. A life for a life. A life for a life. And so they said, we don't want your money. We don't want any Saul's money. We don't want any silver. We don't want any gold. We want seven of his sons. And we want those seven sons to be hung on a cross, seven crosses on the hill of Gibeah. And we want them to pay for the atonement of their sin. Now, that's an unusual thing to do, uh, but that's exactly how they did it back in that day. Most likely, most likely, so you understand the context, when Saul went and did that, he took his sons with him. And so they were part of the war crime. And that's probably why it's coming back on these seven sons. That's what most commentators say. The sins of the fathers have visited themselves upon the sins uh, upon the children. He says, we want them hung up and crucified, verse 6 says, on a tree. That's sacrificial language. To hang them up before the Lord or unto the Lord. It's a language of atonement. You can't right someone else's wrong until this blood is shed for them. Then there's a curse on the land. There's a curse on the land and there's no food, there's no rain, there's nothing available because you have done this great evil against this people. So what's it take to remove the curse? Take these seven sons and hang them on a tree. And David says, okay, I'll do it. Now, sin has serious consequences, and that's the point of the passage is there's a serious consequence to sin, and the only way to right the land and right it is to take care of the sins of the fathers. And so when you take care of the sins of the fathers, God restores and brings back. He entreats the land, and he brings back the rain. That's how they thought back then. The first thing David said is, well, Mephibosheth ain't getting offered up. We ain't going to crucify him. Because he made a covenant with his dad, Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. He made a covenant with Jonathan, and he said, Mephibosheth will not die. I have an agreement for all of his children and all of his uh, uh, stead to be taking care of the rest of their lives. 
And so he chooses the five sons of Merab, which is the sister of Michael, which is the two daughters of Saul, and he chooses five sons of, of Merab. And then he chooses two sons of Rizpah. Rizpah are chosen to be hung. Isn't this going to be a great Mother's Day message? <laughs> this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Just hang on, okay? Because this really speaks to my heart at so many levels. And I want to just do the best I can with it, okay? So, um, first of all, I want, you to, I want to say something about this Rizpah lady. She's a concubine of Saul. Which, number one, to become a king's concubine, you had to be very beautiful. She wasn't chosen as a wife. She was chosen as a concubine, which means then she was there for physical pleasure, just so you understand how kings worked back then, and they work that way today, by the way. And so she became a concubine at several levels, physically, and then also to have children. So the more children you have, the greater your line would be, and the stronger your enemy, you'd be against your enemies. So she had two sons through Saul. And what you understand, she's a very beautiful woman. Now you remember that. Because I'll bring that back out at the end. Now she was so beautiful that when Saul died, his general Abner, the first thing he wanted to do was proclaim that he could be king, but he couldn't be king. He was killed later. But the first thing he did is he had to go to bed with one of the wives of the concubines. So you know who he picked of all Saul's wives and concubines? Rizpah. So this is no run-of-the-mill lady, and this is a very beautiful woman. And I just want you to have that in the back of your mind as we get into this story here today. I'm going to talk to you about four startling truths about one, man's, one mom's fight for her family. Four startling truths about one mom's fight for her family. Number one, the first truth I want you to see is the undeserved consequences this woman faced. The undeserved comp consequences. Just like that, David chose the two sons of Rizpah. These were her only two children, by the way. And so at that moment, she lost her only two children. They were hung and crucified on a cross. Now, I would have done seven crosses up here, but Jeremy said we don't have seven crosses, so just one will symbolize the seven sons that were crucified on the hill of Gabeah. So she became a childless widow just like that, and she wasn't a concubine to David. She was in a very vulnerable place. It's a dangerous place to be when you lose your older sons. They're grown sons, and you don't have a husband, and you're out on your own. You're alone. But rather than mourn for herself, and because of her love for her sons, she set out to guard their bodies. She couldn't do anything to save them. The only thing she could do was to save them from disgrace. So that was her one goal in life. I can't save them, but I can save them from disgrace. And so she decides that she would keep a vigil and keep the animals from eating the flesh of her children. Now, first of all, the first thing I want you to see here is the undeserved consequences of this woman. Have you ever been put in a situation not of your own doing? Have you ever been put in a situation not of your own doing? Maybe right now you're dealing with consequences and the truth is you don't deserve them. 
Maybe it's because of a husband. Maybe it's because of a child. Maybe it's because of something totally disconnected to you, but somehow you got drug into it, and now it's your consequence. And you can't do anything about it. You can't change it. You're living with it, and it's a mess. And it's really not your fault. What do you do? What do you do when life leaves you broken and standing at the foot of a cross where your son has been crucified? It's got to be the worst day of your life. What do you do when you can do nothing? Well, she decided, I can do something. So she sets up a vigil at the foot of the cross, and she watches over her kids who are dead. Number two, the unimaginable sacrifice. The unimaginable sacrifice is from verse 8 to 10. They took her two sons along with the five sons of Merab, and they crucified them on those trees, and they hanged them on the hill. And the Bible says it was, verse 10 says, it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I didn't notice this before until I studied this a little deeper here. The beginning of the barley harvest, so you know, it's not a coincidence, by the way. It's the first or second week of April. First or second week of April, they hang these seven men, grown men, on these crosses. Now, um, the Bible says that she stayed there and she set up a vigil and she stayed there until it rained upon the earth. Now, that phrase, rained upon the earth, doesn't mean, like I used to think it was a week or maybe two weeks or three weeks till it rained and then she went home and, you know, and that, that was the end of that. But that is not what's going on there. She stayed there until it rained upon the earth. In the Middle East especially, this is the dry season from April all the way to October. And so that is the time it would rain upon the earth, that phrase. So God releases the rain in October. Now just figure this up a minute for me. Okay, you've got April, May, June, July, August, September, October, which is absolutely amazing to try to comprehend. But this woman went out there, this beautiful woman went out there, and she probably had some very lavish material in her wardrobe. And the first thing she did is she saw the rock. And she took she took one of her garments and she laid it on top of the rock. And for seven months, she lived on that garment. It's just hard to fathom that, that a woman would do that. And she laid there with that garment there, and the Bible says the rock. There's a rock in the Old Testament, but there is the rock. And the rock is always in the Bible, the mysterious presence of Jesus Christ before he's born. Okay, so the mysterious presence of Christ when the water came out of the rock, the rock, when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock. And now you've got this word used again here. She knew the first thing she had to do was position herself. I don't know if she even understood this, but she positioned herself on the rock. Because she's ready to do a seven-month, she didn't know it was going to be seven-month, but a seven-month vigil for her son. One son, two sons, and then the Bible even says she did it for the five other sons that weren't hers. Which makes me wonder sometimes, where was the other mom? Why didn't the other mom come out there and do that? 
Because some moms don't have it in their heart. I mean, this is gruesome. This is absolutely gruesome to be able to do this. And so she would, she would go here, and the Bible says that in the day she would keep the birds from coming to them. And that would be a deadly thing in that day because one of the curses in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, is to have your eyes eaten out by vultures or ravens or buzzards. Now, you could see why that wouldn't be very enjoyable to have that done to you, but that meant you died a dishonorable death. And if it was a crucifixion, for example, they would come and the ravens would sit on the posts and they would eat your eyes out. It was a person who typically disobeyed their parents and therefore the Bible predicted a judgment upon them that they would bring themselves to an early death. Okay, so what she did, she knew all this. So what she did, she took her other thing, it sort of been her, her, like her uh, shawl or scarf over her head that they would wear of their head like this as they do in the Middle East today and they would cover up their head and many times they'd cover up their nose and their, and their mouth and she took this off which was unheard of in that day and then she would take ashes black and white ashes and she'd start mixing them in her hair now remember this okay and then she'd rub it on her face so she would look ghoulish like a ghost it was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of pain and deep crying that she was feeling for her sons being crucified. And so the, the idea there then is, and, and hang on to this, okay? She goes from being beautiful her whole life to being ugly. So she takes that and she begins to use this shawl for when the daytime would come and she would see those birds and she would start flapping all day long to make sure none of those birds got to her sons or to the other five sons. And so she would go up through all the seven crosses and she would just continue as the buzzards tried to land on her children and on her other sister's kids. And she would slap them away to keep the buzzards from landing on her. Then at night she'd lay down on the rock and if she heard a hiss, if she heard a growl, she would immediately pop up and with just her shawl, she would defend her children from the animals, the jackals, the foxes, the young lions that would try to come and eat the flesh off of her children. She was the only one who did it and she would just shoo them away. I mean, can you imagine? The, I call this the, the unimaginable sacrifice of a woman. What woman would even do this? It just seems so gruesome and so hideous Yet there's a, a real beauty here. She had no house, no hut. She never left. She never left. Maybe a relative came and brought her water or food. We, we, we don't know. I'm sure she had to because she'd have been in a weakened state without it. But, but we do know that she didn't have any means of sustaining herself but just staying right there at the foot of those crosses. She said something like this, even though my dreams are dead, I will not see my sons dishonored. And you buzzards, you will not touch them. I will honor them and I will fight for my children. That is the unimaginable sacrifice of this woman, which leads then to the undaunted calling of this woman. The undaunted calling, which I find an amazing thing in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 28 says that if a man commits a sin and does not repent and obey the covenant, he is cursed, and he dies without a burial. Now, I'm giving you a little background here so you understand the depth of this. He dies without a burial. The Jews had a strict view of burial. 
You bury because you expect to see them again. That's why you bury in that day. You expect to see them again. It was a sign. To bury someone in that day was a sign of a future blessing. They are not staying in that grave. And so you'd bury someone to show them honor so that the sign of the saints, it was a way in the Old Testament you could say to someone, that person's going to heaven because you buried them properly. It was a sign of their faith. Just like when you bury... Uh, the, the way they would have understood been very similar to us. You bury a crocus bulb in the late fall or early fall, and then it's one of the first bulbs to bloom in the early winter. See, it's, it's, they knew to, to bury the plant knows that in just a few short months, even if the snow falls, that crocus will blossom and bring forth life. So that's why they buried. That's why they buried. To be unburied is a sign of shame. It's a sign of shame. It's a sign of damnation. It's a sign you're going to hell. That's the way they thought. And so for her, to, that's why she did this. She said, why did she do this? Because she was going to do everything she could to get him a burial. Because she was not going to let him be dishonored. And whatever it took. And so for these seven months, she does all of these things that I just described to you. The Bible speaks of this unburiedness as a shame, but it's a deeper picture. Revelation chapter 19, at the great feast, at the end of the tribulation period, when the battle of Armageddon occurs, and at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus returns, and the first thing he does is tell the angel, call for the birds, call for the vultures and the buzzards. Call for all those birds of prey to be ready because all of these kings of the earth, all of the rich, all of the poor, all of the unrepentant people that would not bow to me have come to fight and do war with me. I will come down, tell the birds to get ready. There's going to be a great feast upon the land for the unrepentant sinner at this great battle of Armageddon. That's not just a physical picture, so you understand that. That is a spiritual picture. It's not just that they're going to die and be eaten by the birds. It's the plot of damnation for them. They are damned forever, and it is visualized in the unburied body. Now, that's what's so important for you to understand in this passage because it's kind of bringing me to the idea here. So why is she doing all this? Because she knows they're dishonored and shamed right now, and it's the equivalent of my two boys going to hell. A sign of them being destroyed forever. Because why? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's, she knew that verse. And she sits there mourning and crying day after day under those seven crosses. And all it is is a shadow in the Old Testament to the New Testament. Here she sits as a mother underneath these seven crosses because it's picturing another mother that will sit under three crosses and mourn and cry. And I'm sure you know who that mother was in the New Testament. Why are you hanging there? There is a curse on the land for these seven sons and the sins of the fathers that have cursed the land. The land must be cleansed and sin had to be dealt with righteously. So Rizpah said, I am going to make sure they are not desecrated and they are not shamed for what they have done. And that's why the same for Jesus Christ. It's teaching the righteousness of removing sin. Those seven men couldn't remove sin. 
They can only do it temporarily. The curse is lifted and then the famine is gone, but that's all they could do. So they cleanse the land by their expiation, by their pouring out of their blood. But the truth of the matter is that couldn't do it forever. That's why there was one worthy man who is without sin that would go to a cross and he would be cursed because cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. But the difference with him, they were carrying the sins of Saul. Jesus Christ was carrying the sins of the world. My sin, your sin, and all sin was placed upon him on that cross because cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree and he must die the price for the curse, our curse, that we are sinners before a holy God. And Jesus Christ is going to pay that price and anyone who would put their faith and trust in him would be saved and say, Lord, be my Savior. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, New Testament picture that refers back to this Old Testament picture. So that's one thing I wanted you to understand, is this is the teaching of righteousness to remove sin. But the second thing I want to understand is not only that, but it is an Old Covenant picture of intercession and prayer for your children. It's intercession and prayer for your children. So I... I, I could go into this more depth, but let me just say it this way. This culture wants to kill your children. This culture wants to slay them, and if they could, they would drag them to hell. Okay, that's, that's the idea here of this context, to drag them to hell. But this woman wouldn't let her children alone. Every time she saw a jackal, every time she saw a vulture, she said, not on my watch. You will not get my kids. That's the role of a mom in the last days. A mom will look out for her children, even when other moms won't look out. They'll let them go to the vultures. They'll let them go to the wild dogs. But not this mom. Every time you see a demon vulture trying to get your kid, every time you see a devilish jackal, you get down and you have a vigil and you pray before God. You're the only one who has a heart for that. Like no other, not even your husband, has a heart like you do for that. It's worth it to do it over and over and over again until the danger passes. I think this is the call of every parent, but I think it's especially a call of a mom because it goes deeper in my understanding of Scripture inside of a mother. Now, you know what Rizpah means? She fulfilled her name. Her name means burning coal. I love that. She's a burning coal. She wouldn't be put out. If she had to stay there seven months, she was going to stay there seven months. She was on fire. She, if I could say it in our language, she had white-hot prayers for those children sitting out there for seven months. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to think about. She said, I'm not going to let them be desecrated. I'm not going to let them be destroyed. I'm not going to let them be damned. I'm not going to let them be judged. I'm not letting them go to hell. I am not going to let my children go to hell. Oh, what a hideous job, but oh, what a calling this woman had. This, this undaunted calling leads to what I call the irrevocable reward, the irrevocable reward for this woman the Bible says the news of what she was doing spread throughout the kingdom. And people were talking about that mama. And the Bible says the word reached the king. Let me just say this to you, okay? 
Every time you pray to God, the word reaches the ear of the king. Your king. Don't you ever forget that. You may not be able to physically sense that or feel it, but your prayers reach the ear of the king. It's a beautiful thought to think about. He is affected by that. So it touched the whole nation's heart. It pricked David's heart to act. It wasn't just her thing to chase vultures away. It was the whole nation's thing to chase vultures away. They were moved in their heart. They knew they needed God. They needed to get right. And so when you look at the far-reaching results of Rispa's life, it's absolutely amazing. The first thing she influenced was the king. The Bible says that David remembered he had something he never attended to. It says that there in verse 13, he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his sons, from there, and he gathered their bones. The first thing he realizes, this woman went overboard for seven months on a vigil outside watching over her sons, keeping the birds of prey away from them, and I've left the bones of Jonathan and Saul in a Philistine town. And I didn't even care about him. So he took his men and he said, sneak into that Philistine town, steal back the bones of Saul and Jonathan. We're going to give him a proper burial. I need to do the right thing. Because that was a sign of honor. It was a sign that you leave the bones out exposed, it's a picture of your damnation. But if you bury the bones, it's a picture of your salvation. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. And so he said, let's get him a proper burial. Let's honor those bones. Even though the guy gave me all kinds of trouble, we're going to honor the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And so they get, they get the bones and they um, actually bring them back and they bury them. And then David says, now go get the bones of those seven sons because of what that woman did, and let's give them a royal burial. That's what she wanted. She wanted a burial for those sons over everything else because she knew she saw it as their very eternity at stake. God was entreated, business was taken care of, and the rain fell. The second thing I noticed about this that had far-reaching results from this woman's uh, lifestyle was when David saw the burning coal, when he saw Rizpah act like this. The first thing he did, you look at verses 15 to 22, we're not going to read it, but he went back to killing giants. He went back to his calling. His calling was to remove these giants off the face of the earth, and so he goes back to his calling. So not only did he give him a proper burial, but now he goes back to his calling because he saw the calling of this woman, which is absolutely amazing to me, the impact this woman had on David and this nation. The third lesson I saw here was Rispa did not stop her vigil. She did not remove she didn't do it till the reproach was removed and judgment reversed. Until then no vulture gets my kid, no jackal drags him into the bush. I believe mom's one of your greatest ministries is intercessory prayer. It's intercessory prayer. The effectual, hear it now, fervent that's the Old Testament word for Rizpah. On fire, white hot prayers of a righteous man avails much. It's beautiful to think about that. Now, I could be wrong on this, but this is my take. This is the most graphic illustration I know of in the Bible. the beauty of this woman at the moment of her greatest ugliness 
the beauty of this woman at the moment of her greatest ugliness. This was a beautiful woman, but not now. She's ugly now. She's got the ashes on her face. She looks like a ghost. She is haggard. She's been out there seven months. No shower. Nothing like that. And this woman is at her greatest ugliness. But yet underneath it all, the hidden part is her greatest beauty. It's her greatest beauty. It's the most horrific time in her life. Most horrific time. But yet in her greatest moment of physical ugliness, the greatest beauty of her inner character and self-sacrifice as a mom shine greater. Now what does that mean? Is that just a mom? It's far more than that. How about the appearance of Jesus in the hour of his most beautiful act? Chapter 52, verse 14 of Isaiah says, His appearance was so repulsive, he was beyond human resemblance. Isaiah 53, 3 said, He was despised and rejected. We hid our faces from him because he was so ugly and so repulsive. There was no beauty to desire him. He not only became sin for us, he became ugly for us. The ugliness of sin was accompanying us by the ugliness of Jesus Christ's body. It was hard to look at him. Yet at this sacrificial, good news, creating moment on the cross, he was in another sense more beautiful than any other time in his whole life. How do you figure that out? He's more beautiful than any other time. He's more beautiful on the cross than any other time in his life. And that's when he's the most ugliest. God has to give you eyes to see that. Because you're being sold a bill of goods about your outward beauty. That wasn't what made Rispa great. It was the sacrifice in her heart. The glory of the beauty of Christ is at the same moment of his ugliness. That's the significance of every mother's sacrifice. No one touches the power of that sacrifice better than mom's. Her outer beauty may not always be seen, but her inner beauty and sacrifice points us to Christ like no other. That's why I want to celebrate moms today. And that's a beautiful picture. Let's pray. I'm just going to ask you to stand to your feet for a moment. I would like to do something this morning. While you're standing to the feet and praise team's going to come and play us a song, but before they do, I always, like to, I always like to do a blessing over moms. And if you'd like to be part of that blessing, and you're a mother, a grandmother especially, of raised children, maybe it's not biological, but you have raised children in some way, 
I'd like you to come. I'd just like to pray over you. You don't have to come, but if you want to come, Mom, I want to take a moment. Just come as close as you can to this altar, and I want to have a word of prayer over you. I want to bless you today. You can put the lights down. And while they're coming, you can just softly play for me. I appreciate that. And I'm just going to have a prayer, a blessing over you. Come as close as you can. I'd like you to get as close as you can. And maybe just put your hand on the back of someone else on their shoulder or something just to, I don't know, I just like that connection. Nothing special about it, but I just like us connected in that way. So keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Kind of move over here to the front. You can gather up. Last service, I saw a mother who, when I saw her face, I forgot her son's incarcerated. I wish you could remember where that prison is. It's on the way to South Carolina, on the way to the beach. And there's a prison you go by, and I can't remember the way, the road, but, but every time I go by there, I think of that boy as a man now. He's going to be there for another 15 years. I saw that lady come today. Just spoke to my heart. The things that moms carry. Let's pray. I want to put a blessing over you. Father, I thank you for these mothers that have come. I want to honor them today as women of faith. Lord, I pray a blessing over them right now. And Father, they have withstood the, the winds of opposition. They have withstood all types of enemies against them. The turmoils of, of tough times in their life. Dark days. Some loneliness. Good days, bad days. It's different for each. But, but Lord, I ask right now your hand will be over them been over them all of their lives. Continue to touch them, Father, I ask that in this season of their life. Oh God, I pray for that. I pray that you would touch them. Lord, uh, may this be the richest season of their life. The most gratifying, the most satisfying, the most fulfilling, the most nurturing. they sense the fullness of your partnership with them, with, with you, Father. May they sense that. You've begun a good work. And I know, God, that you won't stop until you finish it. <laughs> You're the Alpha and Omega over them. You're the beginning and the end over them. You're the first and the last and everything in between, Father. You're all of these things to them. And so some of them are facing crisis. I know that. Some of it's their sons incarcerated. Some of them, their child's sick. Some of it's, it's their marriage. And whatever it may be, Father, I just pray a special wisdom over them right now. A special wisdom. And God, I want to pray a special blessing that you would overshadow them right now as mothers. Make your face to shine upon them. May you bless them and keep them. 
May you lift up their countenance. Be gracious to them. And give them peace. I lay it over them now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may go back to your seats. Thank you, moms.